0: Well we're in Ephesians chapter four this morning, and we'll begin reading with verse one. Ephesians four, verse one, "I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with, you, with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with, with one another in love." endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. This is the word of God. In the first three chapters uh, that we've studied in the book of Ephesians, we've seen it, and, and you've heard me say it again and again, that Paul has preached to us who we are in Christ. And so if we don't say it again, and I'm sure I will, but if I don't say it again, just hear me well. What's most important when you come to the book of Ephesians, before you go any further, and when you look at your own Christian life, The first thing that must be established is knowing who you are in Christ. In chapter 1 verse 15 and following, and then again in chapter 3 verse 14 and following, he prays. Paul prayed that the Ephesians would experience all of the spiritual blessings that they have in Christ. And that is my prayer for my own heart, it's my prayer for you, and hopefully it's your prayer for yourself and for your whole church, that we will have eyes to see, that God will open our minds to comprehend all the blessings that we have in Christ and who we are in Him. I cannot stress it enough because we so easily forget it that who we are matters more than what we do. Being is overdoing. Your walk with the Lord should come before your work for the Lord. We can't judge our level of spirituality by our level of activity in the church. Because there are people who are active in churches and who have jobs and responsibilities and teach classes and and, and lead activities and do all kinds of things that their walk with the Lord is no nearer than any old person on the street. Now, if you're saved and you're walking with the Lord, I believe 100% that you're going to be active in the work of the Lord and in the church. But the activity is not the standard. The activity is not the measure of where we stand with God, but who are you in Christ? Paul gave us those great proclamations there in chapter 1 about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. How the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. How that the Son redeemed us with His own blood, giving us the forgiveness of sins. And that the Holy Spirit is our assurance as we walk through this world looking forward to that world which is to come and our inheritance in Him. But chapter 4, verse 1 is this turning point in the the book. He's gone this first half of the book, telling us who we are in Christ and praying for our experience of it. But then you get to chapter 4, verse 1, and you have the word, therefore. Because all this of who we are in Christ must mean something. It must have some effect on how we live our lives. The The spiritual realities that we experience in Christ have a very real effect on our conduct. Because just like you, can, you can't measure your spirituality by your level of activity, you also can't be those people whom we refer to as so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. You have to have both. And a true experience of the spiritual, spiritual realities. I can't say spiritual realities this morning, folks. Y'all just gonna to have to bear with me. Spiritual realities. Who we are in Christ. Our experience of that will have an effect on our conduct. And how we carry ourselves and what we do in the world. And that's what the rest of the letter to the Ephesians addresses. Paul calls himself here again, as he has back in chapter 3, the prisoner of the Lord Now Paul, we know writing this letter, was in prison. He was a prisoner of Rome. He could have easily said he was a prisoner of Caesar, but that's not how he looked at himself. He saw himself not as a prisoner of Rome, not as a prisoner of Caesar, but as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether he was locked in a cell or not, Paul had given up his personal freedoms, what he wanted to do with his life, and enslaved himself under the hand of God. Given his life wholly to the Lord. He gave up his personal freedoms to follow Jesus Christ. And he goes on to teach us the effects of the spiritual realities. And the first one that he teaches us here in these six verses is that of unity. Unity. And this follows the logic of, of what he's been teaching in the last uh, couple of chapters. Back in chapter 2, verse 15, he says that he, Jesus abolished in the, his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So now there's no longer this dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles, those who have this history of knowing God and following after his commandments, and those who have a history of paganism and idolatry, But now, all are one in Christ. And so Paul preaches that the effect of our spiritual realities that we have in Christ is unity. How can members of Christ's church walk in unity? You look at the church as a a whole. You look at, just say, the Southern Baptist Convention. You look at, the Surrey Baptist Association is doing okay right now, but we've had our moments, right? Right? Simmons Grove, right? Every church, every association, every denomination has times where there is, seems to be very little unity. And how can we, how can we as Christians, as members of Christ's church, and I say Christ's church because it is His. And it's not limited to the people who show up at Simmons Grove on Sunday. It's not limited to the people who wear Baptist on their church sign. It's the people who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in Him alone, and have been born again. Those are the members of Christ's church. So we're to live in unity among ourselves, yes. And, and to be frank, it starts here. But we can live in unity not just among ourselves in this congregation, but with anyone who professes the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and is following Him. How do we do that? Let me just give you three things here from Paul's, uh, Paul's words. The first is this, consider your calling consider your calling. Verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now, what do we usually think of when we refer to someone's calling? I was talking to a friend just this week, and he had started a a job, and he seemed to be doing well at this company, and I told him that probably 10 years ago, I had interviewed with that company, and I didn't get the job, so I don't know why he's better than me, and he got it, and I didn't then, but he said, well, you know, I think it worked out. He said, you seem to have found your calling. What did he mean by that? I'm doing the job that I feel like God's made me to do as a pastor. You might see somebody who really excels in their field, and you say, yeah, that person found their calling in life. That's not what we're talking about when we refer to a a biblical calling. In fact, if you look through the Scriptures, every time you come across the word calling, it has little to do with your vocation, what you do for a living, what you do for Christ, but rather it refers to how God has effectually called us to Himself in Christ. This calling is our salvation by grace. In 2 Timothy 1, Paul said this, he said, God has saved us and called us With a holy calling. And He's called us not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So your calling is that moment in life when God called your name and you were brought out of darkness into light. When He called you from death to life. I think of Lazarus in the tomb rotting and stinking four days in and Jesus stands after the stone is moved from the door of the tomb and he calls out his name and says, Lazarus, come forth. And what did Lazarus do? He came forth. He got up out of his tomb and made his way out. That's the calling that we have in Christ. That's the calling that Paul is talking about. That day when you heard the gospel and it clicked, no matter how many times you'd heard it before, no matter how many times you'd sat and heard preaching, one day it made sense. And something changed in your life. What was the change? God called you to Himself. And that calling resulted in your salvation. So he says this, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. This calling includes everything from the moment God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to the moment of our glorification in the end. He said this in Romans 8, he says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the what? The called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That, we, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Listen to this. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. This calling that you have in Christ, it began whenever God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world, before you'd done anything good or bad. You've done nothing to deserve his love. You've done nothing to make him hate you. He just chose to love you. Then he called you to himself. And in Christ, he justified you. He washed away all your sins. He gave you a right standing before God. Declared you righteous in his court. Not guilty, but righteous. And the promise of glorification that one day he will make us like Jesus and we'll live with him for all of eternity. That is the calling that you have in Christ. So consider your calling. That's the first thing we have to think of when we think about unity in the church. It is our calling in Christ that is the foundation of our unity with other members of Christ's church. Now Paul doesn't come along and say, have unity with all people at all costs. No. There are people we cannot live in unity with. But we can live in unity with anyone who has been called by Christ and who has been born again. That's the foundation of our unity. So the second thing is this, watch your walk. Consider your calling, but also watch your walk. Verse 1 there again, he says, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. He, He gives this string of Of characteristics here, this string of uh, of fruit that you see born in the life of a Christian. And each one of these things, we want to pray and ask God to produce these things in us and renounce those things which are the opposite of that. Look at what he says here in in verse 2. He says, with all lowliness. That's humility. What's the opposite of humility? What is it we must renounce if we are to walk in humility? Self-centeredness. Because pride would come up and say, i got to have this my way right now. But humility puts others before itself. Jesus was humble. Philippians 2 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. If the God of heaven, who created the world and everything in it, can step down from his throne, step down from heaven, take on the flesh of his creatures and live among them, Letting them put him to death so that he could save them. If he can express that kind of humility, we really have no excuse. We can be humble in him. He says, with all lowliness and gentleness. What's the opposite of gentleness? What must we renounce? Harshness. Harshness. The scriptures say a soft answer turns away wrath. Wrath. Sometimes I mean, listen, let's just be honest. We're people. We frustrate each other sometimes, right? Whether at home or at church or at work or wherever, people get on people's nerves. But if we are to walk in unity, we must be marked by gentleness. Not responding with a harsh word when somebody does get under your skin, but being gentle like Jesus because Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am what? Gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Don't be the cause of unrest in someone else's life, but be marked by gentleness and humility. The next thing he says is long-suffering. It's just an old word that means patience. And I know I hear people say it all the time. Don't pray for patience. You'll go through real hard things to get it produced and you. Well, guess what? Christians are going to go through hard things anyway, so you might as well pray for patience. Now, in the context of the church, and, and, and as it relates to our unity, what would be the opposite of patience? What do we need to renounce as we pursue patience? Uh, Tony Morita said it a, a fine way. He said, this is the tyranny of our own agendas. Because I have things that I'd like to see done, and I know when I want them done, and patience makes me step back and wait on other people. And be loving and kind and patient with the people around me. Oh, Jesus surely is long-suffering and patient. Amen? You know how I know? Because Jacob Hall's a Christian. That's how I know Jesus is patient. You know how Paul knew that Jesus was patient? Because Paul was a Christian. He, He told Timothy this. He said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. You know this, that Christ Jesus came into the world sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy. Here's what Paul said. This is why God saved me, Paul says. That in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering patience as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul says, I know that Jesus is patient. I know that he's going to be patient with any one of you who needs him to be because he was patient with me. I was a Christian killer and he stopped me on the road and saved my soul. And friends, when we consider where we've come from, where God saved us from, oh, it's a whole lot easier to be patient with the people around us and to walk in unity. The next thing he says is interesting. He says, bearing with one another in love. And I'll just summarize it as loving tolerance. Loving acceptance because we can jump to love and we should we get, need to get to love but don't pass over those words bearing with one another some of your newer translations say this and it really is clear putting up with one another in love we renounce the opposite which is our our idealistic expectations that we, we know what, what is ideal and what we would like to see in people, but they don't meet our expectations, right? Other people around us don't do what we want them to do. We can't control them. We can't manipulate them. We can't make them do what we want them to do. So we must be lovingly tolerant. <laughs> we put up with others. We bear with one another. So we accept others. For who they are, not for who we wish they were. You love your church, not for what you hope it will become or, or what it might be, but you love your church for who it is, for what it is, what God has made it and what he is making it. Jesus certainly is one marked by love. This is the kind of love that I want to show at home. This is the kind of love I want to show at church. The love, as I've read so many times before from Romans 5, that we, when we were still without strength. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still what? Sinners. Christ died for us. He didn't say, y'all get your act together and then I'll love you. He didn't say, throw off all your sin and then I'll die for you. No, he didn't love us when we were good. He didn't love us when we were righteous. He loved us when we were still sinners. And friends, that's the kind of love we've got to love with. Not when people meet all your expectations. Not when they're doing everything that you want them to do. But even when they're kicking against you as hard as they can. You love them. You got kids. You've been there. Friend, I pray for this for myself. Because I know I'm prone to get short. At home to get frustrated but this is the kind of love that Jesus has shown me and it's the kind of love I've got to show anybody I've ever had a had a conversation with before a wedding hunter is here and he's experienced this recently so you can go to sleep for the next two minutes um, I always take him back to Ephesians 5 and we'll get there he tells husbands to love your wives how as Christ loved the church And so every chance I get before guys get married, I tell them, say, listen, Jesus didn't love you because of what you could offer him or how good you were or anything like that. But he loved you when you were a low down, rotten, filthy sinner. And so if you are to love your wife just as Christ loves the church, you love her. Not because of how beautiful she is or how great she is or all the things she has to offer you, but friend, you love her even when she's being a low-down, filthy, rotten sinner. And usually I get a smile out of that, but I mean it. That's the kind of love that we have to have for one another in the church, a love that bears with one another even when we're not meeting each other's expectations because that's how Jesus loved us. And then there's diligent peacemaking. That's verse 3. He says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That word endeavoring, that's hard work. That's diligence. It's labor to make peace and to keep it and maintain it. We must renounce the sin of indifference. To see... Places where things look rocky and just look the other way, be apathetic and not deal with it when we see it. But we must be diligent, we must endeavor, we must work to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Just as Jesus made peace. We saw that back in chapter 2. He says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. When we were at enmity with God, Jesus died in our place. He took our punishment so that we could be forgiven and be made at peace with God. And not only that, but He broke down the middle wall of separation so that there's nothing now between Jews and Gentiles. But He made peace between Jews and Gentiles. Therefore, we, following Christ, endeavor to make peace and maintain the unity of the Spirit. It takes work. It's not easy. Don't quit. Work at it and ask God to help you. Jesus modeled each one of these things for us perfectly. And it's our union with Him, our union with Christ, that is the foundation and our strength for living them out ourselves. Friends, listen, in your own strength, you can't do all this stuff. You'll lose it on the second day, if not the first. But if we're going to be lowly, gentle, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, friends, we have to remember who Jesus is. Know that we are united with Him and that He can work these things in us by the Holy Spirit. You know what that takes? Prayer and asking. And when things come up that go against these things, things that threaten the unity of the body, when things threaten the unity of the church, what do you do? Do you resort to pride and harshness and not being patient, not maintaining the love, getting involved in it? Or do you resort to prayer? Say, God, I need help to be what you want me to be in this. I can't control other people. I can't make other people do what I want them to do. But, Lord, I need your help so that I can be what you want me to be in this situation right now. That has to be our first resort. That has to be what we do first, Let's find our way to our knees. What's being described here is simply the fruit of the Spirit. You know Galatians 5, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the fruit of the Spirit. These things that Paul lists here, these are qualities that God is working in all of His children. Make sure you heard what I said. God is working these things, this fruit of the Spirit. And how many of His children? All of His children. If you have the Holy Spirit, that is, if you've been born again, God is working these things in you. Are you surrendered to Him is the question. Are you letting him work these things in you? The more we become like Jesus individually, the more unified we'll become corporately. And that just makes good sense, if you think about it. Because if every single one of us in this congregation is giving focus and attention to our own relationship with the Lord, and we as an individual are trying to become like Jesus every day, then what's going to happen when a whole group of people who are trying to be like Jesus on their own get together? They're going to have unity. They're going to have one purpose and one mind. Well, William Barclay said this. He said, Christians are people who are drawn together because they owe a common debt to the goodness and grace of God. We recognize who we are in Christ. And that's who we each are. And that's the last thing here. The third thing is this. Remember what is reality. Consider your calling, watch your walk, and remember what is reality. Verse 4, he shows us that we're we're one in the Spirit. He says, there is one body and one Spirit. That's not a there might be, there could be, we should work for it. No, there is. It's reality. There is only one body, and there is one Spirit. And if you are a Christian, if you have have been born again, you are a member of that one body. Every single one of you in the same body as every single person in any other church across the world who's put their trust in Jesus. Now, if we're one body and we're one spirit, that ought to give us a desire for unity, right? Just think of your hands for a second. I think we've all got two hands, right? Um, If one is not working the way we think it ought, the other one doesn't say... Well, if he's not doing what he's supposed to do, I'm out. Because then what have you got? No hands. That's a silly example. But it's often what happens in churches. One member of the body sees another member that's not doing what they think they ought to be doing, and they say, well, if that's the way this thing's going, I'm not doing anything either. Or worse, they work against it. But friends, whether you believe it or not and whether you like it or not, we're all in the same body together and we're bound by the same spirit. And friend, if you have that same spirit, you'll probably like it. That we're all one. We're one in Christ. We have the same spirit. We have one hope. He says, just as you were called in, the, in one hope of your calling, every single Christian, every single born again child of God in this world was saved the same way you were. All the circumstances were different. The pr- message might have been preached a little different way, might have been presented in, in various uh, ways. But if any of us have been born again, friends, we've been saved by the same calling, that calling from God by the Holy Spirit through the preached word of Christ. And we have the same hope that we will spend eternity together in heaven, never ending. You're stuck with We are in one, one in the spirit, we have one hope, and we have one Lord. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Who is our one Lord? Jesus Christ. We are all united under his headship. We are his body, but he's the head. He's the one in control. It's his church. We have one faith. That faith is in our Lord Jesus Christ. That faith is the word of God that we hold to without wavering. We have one baptism. We were baptized by the same spirit into that body. One God, one father of all. All who are in the church. He's above us, through us, he's in us. This is all him, all the way around. It's his church. These are the realities. So no matter whatever comes up, what circumstances arise... You can look back to this. There is only one body and one spirit. We were saved by one hope of one calling. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, and there's absolutely nothing that can change that for the true people of God. Nothing can change it. And so the idea is this, when we come down to the end of it, our conduct in the church should match the reality of our unity in Christ. The reality is, we do have unity in Christ. So now we just need to bring our conduct into alignment with that spiritual reality. Does that make sense? This is real. This is what God has given us. He said it's how people would know that we're His disciples. He said it's how people would know that He is the Son of God who came from the Father. Did you know that when we don't live together in unity, we're keeping people from realizing that Jesus really is the Son of God. The stakes are high. But the promise of help is real. This is what Jesus has given us. God's ordained expression of our common union, if I can say it that way, in Christ is one of the purposes of the Lord's Supper or communion. See, we come here, yes, to remember what Christ has done for us in the past, but it also is a reminder of who we are in the present. We don't don't go sit on home by ourselves and take communion on our own. We do it together. Why? Because we're one body. We eat the bread together, partaking in the the body of Christ that was broken for us we drink the cup together participating in the blood that was shed for us we do it together because we are one body it's an act of unity and paul said this in 1 corinthians we we read this every time we do communion he says for i received from the lord that which i also delivered to you that the lord jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said take eat this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, he gives the warning, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man or woman examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment on himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And to the Corinthians, he actually said, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you. And many sleep. It's a metaphor for death. And so while we celebrate the common union that we have in Christ, when we take communion, we also must hear the warning not to take it in an unworthy manner. Jesus said, if you bring your gift before the altar and you there realize that someone has something against you, you leave your gift at the altar and you go reconcile with your brother and then you come back and bring your gift before the altar. And the lesson there is this. You can come to worship God, but if you come to worship God and you're holding something against somebody else, friend, you need to pause worship, go make it right, then come back. And this warning that Paul gives when we come to take the Lord's Supper, we don't take it seriously enough. We have this unity in Christ, but friend, if you've carried yourself or conducted yourself in any way, that would disrupt unity. That would cause division instead of unity. You need to repent and make it right. I invite you as God's child to take the Lord's Supper, but don't take it until you first made your heart right with the Lord and made anything else right with your brother or sister. It's okay sometimes for Christians to say, you know what, I'm not going to take this today until I go make something right. It's been a long time since I've seen anybody do that. Because we don't take it seriously. But you're participating in the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. Will you do it in a worthy manner? He says, examine yourself. And so now we take some time to pray. They'll come and serve in a minute. It's okay if we're, we're here longer than an hour today. But you just right there where you are, bow your head. Ask God to search your heart. See if there's anything that would keep you from taking this Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth it contains. Lord, I pray that you would search our hearts. Reveal to us, Lord, any unconfessed sin, any relationship that needs to be made right. Lord, if someone here has never been born again, open their eyes to that reality. They would see their sin and repent, put their trust in Jesus. And Lord, I pray for the unity of this body. This is your church. This is your body and you can maintain unity. Do it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.